Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ivan Mariasen, CEO and co-founder of Monit, an automated finance management platform that's raised over $6 million in funding. Ivan, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. How did I do on the pronunciation of your last name and the company name? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. My name is Ivan, so that's all correct. Surname was also right. As for the company name, it's always a fun story we discuss in podcasts, how it was supposed to be Monit, and then everybody calls it Monites or whatever else. So we're just kind of getting used to it up until now. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay, sounds good. Perfect. So now before we dive into what you're actually building here, I'd love to start with a quick summary of who you are and just a bit more about your background. Sure, absolutely. So I'm actually originally from Moscow, gross guy by background, worked in Silicon Valley most of my career, where I think I learned to think in Amazon press releases when it comes to product strategy. And my job has largely been growing MRR, ARR for B2B SaaS companies in the Valley, ranging from pre-seeds to series D company, Bright Edge, YC company, People AI. And then moved to Germany when Trump got elected and actually grew one of the key neobanks on the European market targeting SMEs called Penta. And Penta was actually a great starting moment for me in fintech and really understanding SME finance from where Monit Idea actually came from. Very cool. And you left the U.S. because of Trump? Well, I think it's a set of reasons, but so one of the reasons was definitely Trump's immigration policy. So <laughs> my wife's Russian and, uh, you know, having troubles to get her proper work visa was definitely a challenge, while Germany, three days, and we both had green cards, so to say. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I think it's it's just a large discrepancy. And what we found in Europe is that there is this great blue card program. You can actually immigrate in a few days as long as you qualify and your partner gets to come along. It's super smooth, super easy, absolutely frictionless. So, I mean, compared to the trouble of actually getting work permit updated, especially with the Russian passport in the U.S. in those years, this was a walk in the park. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Now, a couple of questions that we'd like to ask just to better understand what really makes you tick as a founder. So, is there a founder CEO that you look up to the most and why? And I always tell people, you know, especially given the news the last 24 hours, it cannot be Elon Musk. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to say it's definitely Elon. I think I also admire Richard Branson. To me, what makes me tick about the founders I respect is not even the business they built, but rather how they think. I tend to be the sort of person who challenges the boundaries of reality. I think I hear a lot of feedback from, you know, my colleagues or even investors that sometimes I sound completely lunatic, but I think that's also one of the key traits of a successful founder to like really challenge the status quo, really challenge reality. Imagine what other people think is impossible. And in that sense, I think both Richard Branson and Elon Musk really kind of match the profile. And I can very much relate to ideas like, you know, Richard Branson saying like, oh, look, I just want to run an airline. Oh, look, I just want to go buy an island. I can totally relate to these things in perspective of kind of personal goals, but also in perspective of what I think should and can change in the business and in the world around me. And actually, the mere reason why I'm in business is just because thinking about 
between all the different things I could do with, you know, my talent, my skills in life, for example, between public service and business, mm -hmm. I just found that business is the thing that crosses boundaries, crosses borders, can make a lot more impact without sort of like long-term political career, sort of say. And this is why I think it's worthwhile spending time dreaming big, but actually making it realistic to build. And this is where my girl's background helps because I always try to think from the end user. It's just the solutions I can imagine go beyond what people might think is possible in today's market. Nice. I love that. And when I was doing my research for this interview, I noticed you really put yourself out there. I found a video of you from seven years ago on YouTube titled, What is my life mission? Uh, what is your life mission? Can you summarize that? Oh, that's a really old video, actually. I remember recording it in the US, actually. No, look, I think my life's mission is probably the realization of that is, is changing over time. But the way I would formulate it today, and probably this might change tomorrow, but just kind of the way I see it is, is really bringing the ideas and kind of the wisdom I have inside me through different aspects of life into the world. And what I believe is that we're all granted a certain kind of talent. We all have certain skills. We all have a certain vision. We have it for a reason. So the best thing we can do is just kind of be ourselves, do what we do, and through that, translate our values and our vision into the world. And I try to do that across multiple different levers, including the work I'm doing with Monit, the advisory I'm doing for startups, you know, the simple things, the simple social things I'm doing with friends, with family, or the rest of that. And I just really try to think that everything I do in every day is really translating myself into something in life. And that's the one thing I learned over the last years is just trying to be more conscious about every sort of life touch point I'm having in every day. Nice. I love that. Now, one last question here to better understand you. What book has had the greatest impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or it can be a personal book that's just really influenced how you think. Oh, definitely a straight answer here. It's what you do is who you are. I think it's an amazing book that really talks about how companies are built. And while I have, you know, 100 favorite books apart from that, that talk more about consciousness and, you know, personal development and all that, I think what you do is who you are is just a great book to realize that many of the things, they actually happen themselves, whether or not you agree with them, whether or not you realize them. And this was the turning moment for me as a founder in thinking how to actually build the company, how to establish culture, what culture actually is, because it's simply a fact that when we all start companies, we have great aspirations and we really want to kind of make it the best place to work and just be all of those great things written in books. But what Ben Horowitz points out in what you do is who you are is that a lot of reactions, they actually shape reality of your culture a lot more than whatever you write on the whiteboard, whatever you write on your website. And this is something that's completely changed my perception on what should I be doing in every day? How should I be making decisions? How should we be building internal comms? How should we be building external comms? And what is actually going to be the effect on culture with every hire, but also with every war direction I say as a CEO? Nice. Yeah, I think 90% of guests say either one of Ben Horowitz's books. So most people say the hard thing about hard things, but this is another really good one. I feel like this one didn't get as much attention as hard thing about hard things, but I agree. It's a, it's a really good book. Totally. I think hard thing about hard things talks about 
basically the consequences of having one or another culture. And what I always told people is like, you know, it's a funny fact that we had a mentorship program for all employees in pre-seed. And I remember knocking on, you know, a couple people's doors when I just raised the first million for us and asking them like, look, guys, I really wanted the best leadership coach. And I was actually doing training with Sue Bethanis, who is one of the top Silicon Valley coaches. And she's first told me like, look, Ivan, I work with scale-ups. I work with post-IPO companies. Why do you want to do this? And I was like, look, I want to do this because I want to be there. And I don't want to be fixing culture five years down the line when it's already got broken and when I have a hard thing to solve. So to me, what you do is who you are is exactly fitting into how to not get into a troublesome situation, how to avoid some obvious gaps that might come up in the market. Nice. Super smart. All right, changing gears now. Let's talk about the origin story behind the company and what do you guys do? Sure, absolutely. So the story behind the company is basically, you know, me observing the whole kind of SME finance space and realizing at some point that while there is a lot of hype around spend management, neobanking, etc., the most recurring feedback we heard back in Penta days was actually around the hustle of managing business finances as a whole. And the things people were complaining about were really more on the admin side, just kind of running all these invoices, reconciling for accounting, et cetera, et cetera. And the realization back then was that you're actually forced to either use multiple different specialized tools, sort of like Expensify for expenses, build a account for AP, or you got to just kind of use Excel. And the reality was that, and still is, that most of people use Excel or some sort of manual process. So Monita actually started as a response to that, saying like, look, in 2021, 2022, you got to have modern finance stack. So we first built a dashboard, a control center for small business finance, where people could literally do everything from cash flow analytics to accounts payable, receivable or whatever. But then the realization that came after was that while a lot of people were signing up and using the product, we had a lot more people who weren't signing up And they were literally saying, I don't want any new software. I just want this automation, this exact thing inside the interface I'm used to. And this led us to realize that the real innovation in a segment can only happen when you start plugging in this finance automation, this admin automation into platforms people are using, such as neobanks, such as POS systems, vertical propositions like Squire for barbershops, or whatever it may be. And this was exactly the moments around a year ago when we transitioned the business into API first. And what we do today is we pretty much help companies become sort of enabling the full finance control center for their clients, where a neobank can offer AR, AP, and the rest of the functionalities to their clients without building any of them. So we let them plug in functionality like build.com in three weeks through an API, and they can make quite a lot of money on the functionality itself, on the payment processing, and soon on financial services upsell. Nice. Very interesting. And what's the target market that you're going after right now? What's that look like? So theoretically, we could go after a really wide market of all these platforms that actually have business plans. But I would say we're very realistic about the focus, especially pre-series A. So today, we're present in multiple markets, US, UK, a bunch of countries in mainland Europe. And we're mainly talking to B2B neobanks and B2B SaaS companies, ranging from fintech software to more specialized sort of long tail propositions of vertical software targeted at specific business types. And then post A, we're actually going to expand to talk more to marketplaces, to talk more to 
all sorts of folks like banks, corporates, and the rest of them that actually have great customer audiences, but sales cycles in those segments of the market are a lot lengthier. Got it. That makes sense. And what type of traction have you seen so far? So, so far, we actually signed a number of platforms, I think six, seven up until now. Mm -hmm. And some of them are already live. Some of them are going live soon. So we've seen a lot of interesting demand. And honestly, we've grown a funnel of, I think, 100 plus platforms in just a few months, fully organically. We didn't even do any outreach. We didn't really do any marketing, but we got a lot of inbound and introductions from people who were actually excited to already plug this in. And now we're basically processing that interest. Plus, finally, we got a sales function in place. So there will be more uplift in terms of outreach and kind of making ourselves more visible in the market. So, so far, I think it's great. And the biggest thing we learned so far is that what we anticipated our target market to be is probably 5 to 10% best case of what we're already seeing in terms of demand. Wow, that's a good response to get. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's also very much in line with how many embedded finance players developed. Mm -hmm. It's like if we think about Plaid Story or many other players that started a category, it's like you launch a product or like Stripe. You start with one product, you release it live. Then you start hearing a crazy amount of requests for adjacent products, different use cases. And even now, we had three or four different cases pop up for our invoicing rail that we didn't even think about. But with the same rail, we can apparently close business on multiple verticals without actually altering the product. And if there is one thing I love about infrastructure, it's this. It's the fact that you build something in Lego blocks and then you let the market show you what they actually need to make with this, which I think opens up a lot of space for creativity and creates new market by itself. Nice. And you mentioned category there. Can you walk me through your thinking when it comes to market categories? Absolutely. So I think we're in a broader embedded finance space as a whole and embedded finance has grown big in the last few years. So where we sit in the market is really on top of technologies that are sort of more kind of embedded finance uh, like where it's like, you know, embedded bank accounts, cards, facts, etc. So we accelerate the usage of that stack. So mm -hmm. think of the likes of unbanked, solid finance, Rails Bank, Solaris in Europe and kind of a number of other players. Also complementary to all sorts of guys using Mambu and core banking systems like that. And then where we really see it is a whole new section in the industry where we're doing embedded ARAP expense management, but expense management not focused on cards, really expense management focused on the software workflows. And in that sense, we're somewhat similar to kind of the philosophy that DriveWells is pushing to market. So DriveWells, for instance, is doing embedded stock trading, and this is really a value add for the customer. It's fully embeddable. We're doing another value add for the customer, but we're one of the first to actually operate in embedded ARP space. And what are you guys doing to really break through the noise? You know, funding is obviously booming right now, and there's so many startups out there, just a lot of noise. How are you overcoming that? So look, I mean, now we're having a luxury situation that's the most common VC feedback we hear is, oh, we haven't seen anything like this. That helps. That helps a lot. This comes at a price, though, where people start questioning of like, is this really a market? How big this market is? How the competition will look like a couple of years down the line? So I think in terms of cutting some of the noise, we can cut through fairly quickly when it comes to fundraising, just because we're really unique at the moment, where we see a little bit more challenge 
is just kind of enabling our customer audience to understand the sort of topics we do better. Simply because it took people quite a while to understand how interchange revenue works. It took them quite a while to understand how plugging in effects helps. It took them even more while to understand some other kind of, you know, embedded products like even open banking. But what we do is all new. So many people don't know what a YAR and AP are. They don't understand how much money they can make with this. They don't see direct connection to customer value. And so our job in the next couple of years is really to do two things. It's one, to find platforms that are already aware of their customers' challenges, who can plug in the functionality quickly and create a successful use case with us that we can show to the market. But it's also number two, where we just really need to educate the market on the ERP topics, SME finance as a whole, and then how this is becoming more sort of hyper-local. And if you look at you know the recent publications we did, including Forbes, we're basically going after the story of hyper-niche super apps emerging all across the B2B world. Interesting. And as you know from you know building this company, and I'm sure from all the other ones that you're part of, bringing innovative technology to market is never easy. What's been your greatest challenge so far, and how do you overcome that challenge? Absolutely. I think the biggest challenge we're having is what I mentioned, right? It's the education on what IP and ER are, what are the complexities behind building them. So in that sense, I think multiple things helped us along the way. I think one is very counterintuitive. It's actually controlling the level of detail you provide in the sales flow. Because when we started selling, and I have to admit, it's largely my fault, we are experts in the space. So we had a tendency to overload potential customers with details, with product flows, with everything there. And they would just get easily lost when actually at that moment, they didn't fully understand the kind of the whole USP of the product yet. And so giving them more detail wasn't productive. And so the way we overcame this largely was actually shifting sales from my south to our head of sales now, but also really controlling step by step how much does a customer need to know at every moment in time, plus what do they actually need to hear to really understand the value chain down the line for their clients. So that's number one. Number two is really kind of explaining to people what are AREP largely. And while we're doing general kind of market education at the moment with all the kind of news publishing and everything else, what helped us most was specifically the sales flow was actually showing people specifically how the product looks like. And while we're API first, we found a way to run demos in the interface of a customer where we could clearly say like, look, this is the future of your platform. This is exactly how AP and ER are going to work. This is what your customer will be able to do. And this really changed the game for us because from an abstract API sort of functionality, we became something really tangible to a user. And then people would come back to us and say, look, these guys are enabling me to be the financial dashboard for my clients. And they would have a picture to it. So this was number two. Nice. Very interesting. And last couple of questions here. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? That's a great question, Brett. So I think what excites me most is that we're on to something big here as we do infrastructure because we have a feeling that we can redefine the way people actually do finance administration. And it might take us a few years to get there, but we really want to reimagine the whole infrastructure, the backbone of things like document exchange, of partly things like payments and the rest of it, 
across SME finance and other sectors. And what really drives me is this feeling that while many people in the space touch AR and AP topics, none of them actually went global and infrastructure first. And this is why we're still kind of doing the same thing as 10 years ago, sending invoices over email, OCRing bills, and having all sorts of issues related to manual work that could entirely be eliminated if the backbone of the infrastructure behind the industry was different. And so the idea that we can change that, the idea that we can change how financial services are consumed, because they can be consumed in a data-driven manner, it really drives me just understanding how much impact and time saving this will make for so many people out there running a business. Amazing. And last question here, if we zoom out into the future, what's the five-year vision for the company? Yeah, that's also a really exciting topic. I would say there are a couple themes we're after. One is becoming the default provider for all sorts of platforms that want to plug in or operate financial document exchange, ARP topics, expense management topics, etc., and doing this across the world, where, for instance, if you're a global platform working with customers in 20 countries, you plug in a single API and you get compliant document processing in all those countries, including value add, etc. The second part is really changing the way financial services are consumed. And this is really just to say, like, people shouldn't be Googling for factoring. People shouldn't be Googling for cash advance. People should just be consuming these things inside the workflow. And one of the things we're trying to achieve is that we've seen any interface. You as the business owner, you as the CFO, can just click one button and get your factoring done. Click another button and delay payments on your bills. And so all these integrations that we're planning in years to come will hopefully enable us to bring this picture into the world where financial services will be sold API first rather than on Google with excessive customer costs. Amazing. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? I think LinkedIn is the best place to find me and also happy to kind of get any connections or questions from the broader space and folks out there. So very happy to connect. Awesome. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. Really love what you guys are building and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. So let's keep in touch. Thanks, Brad, for having me. Thank you. Talk soon.